Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series on careers in the atmospheric and related sciences. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Horner, and we will be your hosts. Our podcast series will give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We are excited to introduce today's guest, Karthik Mukavili, a machine learning project scientist at the University of California, working on the U.S. Department of Energy's Exascale initiative. Welcome, Karthik. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Karthik, could you tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in science and how it influenced your educational path? Yeah, sure. Um, So I was actually born in uh, India and I lived there until the age of 12. Um, And after that, I moved to um, New Zealand, which is where I grew up and did most of my high schooling and undergrad education. Um, So my initial formative years, um, there was a strong emphasis, at least in the Indian education system, on STEM. So just going through that uh, system sparked early interest in it, um, but it was slightly um, away from my true passions. Um, And when I moved to New Zealand, um, I went through the motions of just going through high school and I excelled at math and physics and chemistry, those sort of fields. But really, um, I discovered my real interest um, even after my undergrad in electrical and computer engineering and even beyond my master's. Um, so at the end of my master's, I had a, I went to Imperial College um, London uh, for my master's in UK um, from New Zealand. And I had a lot of opportunities available to me uh, just having done two degrees in engineering. And I started questioning what am I truly passionate about? So I went back, in fact, to India at that point to figure out, you know, how I can perhaps contribute to society and just to get in touch with my roots. And I realized that some of the major issues uh, that we were facing uh, can't really be fixed necessarily with the engineering tools that we had already developed. And the focus had to shift to some of the fundamental issues like sustainability and uh, climate change and just being in touch with uh, nature. And I saw that technology was losing touch with what's happening out there in the real world, um, in the Indian context, but more generally the rest of the world as we see now. So then I decided to delve a bit more into this and I started reflecting on um, initial experiences uh, where I did have interest um, in certain topics and it turned out that um, during my undergrad years as an electrical engineer, I, I did a final year project on solar energy um, in Pacific Islands. And likewise, during my master's, I kind of stuck with the whole solar energy world. And I ended up doing a PhD in um, solar energy forecasting um, and looking at the impacts of um, atmospheric aerosols um, in Australia. And initially, I never had any goal of being a researcher or getting a PhD at all. Um, I just wanted to work in this area. So I started working with CSIRO, which is um, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization in Australia. And I realized that, well, if I'm going to be in research, maybe I need to get a PhD. Tell us more about that first job you had outside of your schooling and how that led to where you've taken yourself to now in your career. So my very first job was um, actually 
a software engineering internship during my undergrad um, itself. And that particular skill that I had developed relatively early became useful um, over time because currently what I'm doing is uh, applying computational methods and artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques to solve problems in climate change and earth system science. So my very first role was actually in a bioinformatics uh, company in New Zealand called Orion Health. But through subsequent experiences uh, in different engineering uh, roles um, and through research, I uh, decided to develop that uh, particular skill set of mine, uh, which is mostly around modeling and programming. So um, you mentioned that you have degrees in engineering. So if if a student you was just starting school and they really wanted to pursue a job in artificial intelligence or uh, machine learning, uh, what degrees, courses, skills would be the most helpful? Yeah, so machine learning is a fairly um, diverse field and you do get people from different backgrounds, but... Um, uh, a lot of the latest developments um, and just to contribute to moving that field forward, having strong skills in applied mathematics, um, statistics, and uh, programming is very useful to be a machine learning scientist. And there's people from operations research, those sort of fields as well, uh, who can come into this. And uh, my background itself was an electrical and computer engineering. Um, so that was my degree. But yeah, um, so those would be the main skill sets. So what program languages are the most used now? So I guess Python is a very useful language uh, to learn just because um, it's very functional and relatively easy to pick up. And there's a lot of uh, machine learning libraries linked with uh, Python and the AMS um conferences, in fact, have um, several uh, Python initial workshops and tutorials, and I think even certain sessions which uh, focus on Python um, these days. So it's a very useful skill set as a meteorologist to learn because a lot of the work is getting ported from Fortran to Python uh, in order to interface with the machine learning libraries. Um, And especially if you're going to be doing like deep learning so there's uh, packages like TensorFlow and so forth, uh, which you can link relatively um, easily through Python too. So tell us, Karthik, what um, position do you hold now? Yeah, so I recently started a new role uh, with the University of California as a project scientist focusing on machine learning and earth system sciences um, on the U.S. Department of Energy's um, Exascale Computing Initiative. And The goal of the Exascale Computing Initiative is um, essentially to get to the point where you can run scientific computation at a billion instructions per second um, at that scale. So this is going to be really transformative to solve a lot of the problems uh, that we encounter across all fields of science, uh, but especially within Earth System Science where we operate at various scales, uh, all the way from the macro to the minuscule or micro um, scales. Uh, it's very powerful to have access to such uh, exascale computing systems. And currently, as we get more and more 
data um, coming in. Uh, we're living in this world of big data, um, which uh, lends itself to machine learning models. Uh, so there's a natural mix between both the machine learning feed work and the advances which are happening in um, increased computation. So this is going to have direct benefits to fine-scale prediction of um, extreme events like uh, wildfires to flooding. Uh, right now, we can't really predict this uh, for like households or uh, make projections that accurately. Um, so exascale computing uh, would hopefully strive to achieve that. So what's a typical day like achieving the goals of the exascale initiative? Yeah, so my typical day is um, composed of reading different research papers, um, understanding what's the latest set of algorithms, both within, well, mainly within the machine learning field and seeing how they can be applied to some complex problems, uh, which the earth system science or meteorology and climate fields are facing. And yeah, programming and developing new algorithms, uh, testing them, uh, having meetings with different collaborators across the world, but especially, you know, within your own research group. Um, so over time, it becomes a very close-knit community. Um, so having that day-to-day uh, -day interaction uh, through emails, um, through just these days with COVID, like Zoom uh, meetings, uh, and also attending conferences, yeah, relatively often is something my day would look like. How do you find the reading material that you keep up with? Yeah, so I read pretty broadly, all the way from just a general news feed um, that you know you would get from like National Geographic or Scientific American um, or like Nature News um, alerts, uh, all the way to uh, specific journal articles. Um, I tend to be more like problem-solving oriented. So uh, if I'm faced with a certain problem, then I tend to do like a Google search um, of Google Scholar search of um, different articles, which um, perhaps focus on uh, the specific question that I'm trying to answer. Um, and then I do my reading along those lines, uh, typically just reading the initial abstract and conclusions, looking at the figures. And then if it's interesting, then delving more into the details of a specific paper. Are there any journals or news sources that you feel have a focus on the interaction of AI with um, environmental science? Yeah, so actually, um, this is a twofold answer to this. Um, on the one hand, uh, this is a very new and emerging field, so there isn't currently a proper interdisciplinary journal in this field. Uh, and in fact, I've been invited to serve as an editor in one of these. Um, I don't want to publicly name it yet um, until it's official, but um, there is the idea of creating such a journal at the moment. Um, but uh, so far, most of this uh, super interdisciplinary work, uh, which is broad-reaching, gets published in places like science and nature. But at the same time, it's the barrier there is relatively high. Um, so one of the issues is that there isn't a proper venue to publish this work uh, at the moment. There are, in the AI conferences uh, more recently, there's been, just since last year almost, um, uh, I've been part of um, different workshop organizing committees and 
chairing certain workshops where we accept different papers, which are at the intersection of both fields. Um, the AMS uh, AI committee, something I've been part of ever since, I think my first or that was the end of my first year of PhD. It's now existed for, um, I think, maybe more than 20 years. Um, they have uh, an annual conference uh, which focuses specifically on these topics. So, But this is more in the conference space and less in the journal space. So what do you like most about your job so far? So what I like about my job the most is that it's so close to real-world impact um, uh, most of the times. I think that's um, difficult to get from a lot of um, other fields. Uh, while you can be a machine learning scientist, uh, even at some of the best tech companies, um, most of it could be like increasing ad revenue or better tuning uh, marketing algorithms. Um, it's not so much about actually solving global challenges uh, for the most part. Um, so what I do with machine learning is hopefully for you know the social good and to solve important problems. So that's something which I find uh, quite rewarding. On the flip side, what would be the most challenging aspect about the work you do? One of the most challenging aspects of the work I do is that it requires, after a certain point, it requires you to delve super deeply in two parallel fields. And that can be hard to do for a certain individual because uh, you need to be really both a domain expert um, in a certain area, but at the same time have like deep knowledge um, also of uh, the cutting edge work which is happening in machine learning. So I do find that challenging, but at the same time, yeah, mostly through coincidence almost, I over time ended up developing skills uh, in both these fields uh, because my undergrad was in electrical and computer engineering, but then the PhD work was more in atmospheric physics and uh, renewable energy forecasting. So a lot of people who do end up at the intersection of these fields, um, they didn't quite plan it, um, I would say. It just so happened that their interests evolved over time to lead them to this. Um, however, increasingly, we're seeing like very close links being drawn uh, between both these fields. And for people who are starting out now, um, uh, I think uh, they'll see closer theoretical connections at the interface of both the fields um, so a new set of um, qualifications and a new set of programs will emerge, um, I think, in the coming years uh, where they can directly train at the intersection of both the fields. So as far as your work schedule goes, um, does it allow for a good work-life balance? Is it a Monday through Friday type deal or um, do you have to ever work weekends or nights or anything like that? Uh, so my work schedule is really flexible. So yeah, it's more like, say there's a conference deadline coming up or a certain grant proposal deadline coming up, then we tend to work towards, I tend to work towards that. But in research, it's mostly like how productive do you personally want to be um, as a researcher? Um, so you can... You can work like 24-7 if you really wanted to, or you can reduce that workload to uh, what is feasible uh, for you. Yeah, so there's a huge variance in 
research productivity um, across individuals, uh, but it's more to do with like personal alignment of goals. And even different researchers focus on various things. Like some people uh, like to focus more on the teaching side uh, than in research uh, because it, for them that's more rewarding. Some people try to focus more on like technology transfer too. So that's uh, another aspect. It's very um, flexible and really up to you how you want to evolve uh, your career um, while you're in research. Yeah, it definitely sounds flexible. So are there any like benchmarks that you have to meet? Like, you know, um, when you have a review with your supervisor, do they look to see if you've written or published in a certain number of papers or presented at a certain number of conferences? Like, you know, how, how does that work in terms of, you know, accountability? Yeah, so certainly uh, once people are, you know, in the trying to secure tenure um, at different departments, then it does get quite competitive. Um, so uh, they are reviewed um, purely based on how many, uh, for the most part, uh, based on how much funding they've attracted, um, how many high-impact journals they've published in, um, uh, for them to move up the ladder. So, um, yeah, there's this mentality of publish or perish, um, which does happen. I am in a slightly different role in that I am currently not in the tenure track uh, race uh, yet. Like I'm more in the scientist role as opposed to in the tenure track um, role. So I don't have the same metrics as such. But in saying that, generally it hasn't been, at least for for me, like an issue um, getting those publications out. Um, So... Yeah, it's important to be very collaborative, and that that generally helps um, as well. You mentioned that a lot of the jobs in machine learning for some companies can be focused on more business goals such as advertising or um, increasing profit in some way. Do you see uh, the future of the job market changing? Do you see the intersection of AI and and the environment? Are those jobs... um, you know, is that maybe driven by government funding or, or what does the future look like? Yeah, so within the machine learning field, um, there is certainly a lot of time devoted towards uh, problems which aren't necessarily like focused towards the wider social good. Uh, but that's like a more fundamental problem of corporations um, and their existence in the world at this point in time. Um, so aligning shareholder interests with um, public interests. Uh, this is like a basic problem facing the world at the moment. So, But putting that aside, I think AI has a lot of potential to uh, benefit humanity. And there are a lot of companies working in this space um, too, uh, which are uh, doing amazing work um, to solve very critical problems, um, even within and perhaps even especially within the um, earth sciences uh, field. So, uh, you know, you can have companies uh, which are mining different satellite data to improve uh, food productivity. Um, uh, You can have startups uh, which are providing better um, extreme weather and climate forecasts. Um, All of these applications, uh, we're seeing them come about. Um, So far, it also has been a case of just the technology not being mature enough uh, for it to serve um, humanity yet. Like the reason why we haven't quite seen 
even before COVID kind of strike the world, um, having a lot of mature machine learning technologies uh, being deployed is because the technology hasn't really been tested uh, to solve such problems yet. But through this COVID crisis, a lot of people are also working at the interface of uh, machine learning and what's happening in uh, environmental epidemiology and coming up with new technologies so that if and when the next um, pandemic uh, hits us, um, uh, there'll be a lot of uh, tools out there to help the world. And likewise, um, there is work happening uh, with within the earth science field. Uh, one of the issues has been that there hasn't been, until very recently, access to large data sets from uh, very high resolution, say, satellite data or other sensor data, uh, which has been available. Uh, but now uh, we're reaching a point where uh, you can actually do something useful um, with machine learning too. So it's uh, a multiplicity of you know factors, um, and at the same time, you know, as we're facing more and more crises, I think people are getting more cognizant of what's happening around them and what is important and what's not. So that's changing the nature, hopefully, <laughs> of even business. So you started off with degrees in engineering and then ended up with atmospheric science as as your PhD. Is there anything you wish you had done differently in your career? Or do you think the path that you started and ended up with is is the best path for you? Oh, no, I don't think I necessarily took the most efficient or best path for what I am doing. Uh, I certainly wouldn't call it like a waste of time in any way because it did inform me of what I was interested in and what I wasn't interested in. Uh, but if I were to redo it, perhaps... Um, where I sit, I would probably have focused more on, like perhaps as an undergrad, done applied math and statistics um, as a base, and then try and, during the PhD, perhaps focused uh, more directly on just um, either machine learning or uh, mathematical physics of some sort, um, and then gotten into the area that I'm doing, because those that particular base is harder to acquire uh, slightly later on. But in saying that, like what I've done allows me the ability to branch um, across into things which could be even at the intersection of, say, like robotics and so UAVs and like uh, wildfire prediction, right? So those sort of things, I have a greater appreciation of it. So yeah, it's hard to like connect the dots looking forward, but it's more a case of hindsight. Right. I mean, you're definitely well-rounded, and I would think that your skills would make you very marketable because you have, you know, a variety of specialties. So, um, like you said, you don't really regret the path that you took because it's it's been an advantage. But, um, you know, I, I do see how you would maybe want to take some different courses depending on, you know, where you wanted to end up. Um, with applied math and statistics. Yeah, so one reason not to do too many different things um, is uh, just due to the way academic research is structured in terms of the hiring. So people who stick necessarily with one field and then build um, only through that, um, a lot of the hiring is still very disciplinary as opposed to being interdisciplinary. Um, although a lot of good research um, happens to be interdisciplinary. Uh, so it's a little paradoxical uh, the way it works, uh, mainly because, yeah, it's just 
academia and uh, different universities and the way they're structured are also outdated. But there have also been certain good reasons as to why um, that is the case. Like over time, people have realized that they specializing in certain fields um, is really the only way to progress uh, with all the new scientific advancements at the pace at which they're moving um, in the modern uh, scientific world. Whereas in the past, like it was considered more important to be like a polymath almost, um, mm -hmm. right? Um, but that's no longer feasible. So I would say having focus is useful in many ways. Um, but at the same time, it's important to have a broader perspective. It's hard to achieve um, both. It's a trade-off uh, that uh, one would have to make in their career. Karthik, do you think there was a most exciting moment in your career you could pinpoint? Um, I think towards the end of my uh, PhD, um, when I realized that um, I had developed skills in a certain area like atmospheric science, and I saw the developments which were coming about in uh, machine learning, um, I realized that my previous background could also be useful again. So I did postdoctoral work in Canada with um, like a Turing laureate. Um, essentially, that's like the Nobel Prize for computer science. Uh, and my advisor had received that after I actually began working with him. Uh, so that was a big privilege uh, to have worked with him. And yeah, um, I've had the opportunity to work with like IPCC Nobel laureates, but also people at the very best in the computer science field. So um, just having that sort of exposure um, has been very rewarding. Are there any other opportunities that um, you would advise students to pursue if they were looking for a career in machine learning? Um, you know, were there any things that you had done, like internships or um, courses you took outside of university that were helpful? Yeah, certainly internships are very helpful. I would say more than courses, just a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm of the opinion that you shouldn't really pay for um, studying this day and age. Um, uh, a lot of the work is available online. So, yeah, don't be spending too much um, on education, work towards a scholarship, if not. Self-learn um, is the new mantra I would follow. Uh, in terms of outside of academic research, uh, there's a lot of um, really cool research happening in industrial labs, which is um, as cutting edge, if not more. Um, so I wouldn't, even if someone wants to, say, become a professor in the future, um, it's worthwhile spending time in technology company research labs uh, to equally um, especially within the machine learning world. Um, in fact, that particular flexibility doesn't um, exist as much, perhaps, say, in meteorology. Um, although in meteorology, you know, people do end up spending time in like national and government research labs. Uh, they don't have that same luxury of working in industrial and technology company settings. And then again, uh, moving across or back to um, academia. So if someone's working in ML, those opportunities exist. Karthik, uh, before we let you go, uh, we always love to ask our guests one uh, fun question at the end of each of our podcasts. And I'd love to ask you if you could meet one famous person, alive or dead, who would it be? Uh, I would like to meet Isaac Newton, I think, because 
I recently read somewhere that um, during, just as we have with COVID, uh, during the plague, um, he was super productive and ended up uh, creating some of his most amazing work, um, just sitting at home. So I'd like to know how he ended up doing that. <laughs> so some tips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tips that would help you out right now so that you could... <laughs> create some wonderful discoveries. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Karthik, and sharing your work experiences with us. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine. <laughs>